This is Digital Impact 4Q4. I'm Chris Delatore. Today's four questions are for Poonam Joshi, Director of Global Dialogues Funders Initiative for Civil Society, or FIX, and Ben Hayes, Director of AWO, a legal firm and consulting agency working on data rights. In 2019, FIX launched a strategic review aimed at helping funders realize their potential to disrupt and reform the drivers of closing civic space through collaborative and targeted interventions. The organization has published the first in a series of recommendations considering how a range of factors created the conditions for an accelerated dismantling of civic space worldwide. Today, we're sitting with the authors of the report, who are calling for new ways to expand the space for civic participation. Poonam, let's start with you. Most of those you interviewed felt that existing funder initiatives were insufficient in responding to the scale of the challenges now facing civil society. What is your vision for building a global movement that pushes against the drivers of closing civic space? And how likely are governments to agree? Thank you, Chris. Um, so I think I think challenges in recent years, we've all been aware of this phenomena, but we've been looking at what's happening downstream. So a lot of the action has been around legal defense, protection, security, really necessary interventions, but not ones that go to the heart of what would really make a difference. And through this research, we had a real aha moment in identifying not just a whole range of drivers, but three drivers that seem to cut across all of the issues that are going to be really contested over the next decade, from combating climate change to economic and social inequality and the future of democracy. Um, And so the first sort of basis for this global movement is, do we have a shared analysis? And we're really calling upon civil society and funders to galvanise their focus around the three dominant drivers of closing civic space. The first one was governments using, abusing counterterrorism security laws and discourse and tools for political and civic repression. The second was around ideological threats to democracy and civic space from the far right, religious right. And the third was around abuse and concentration of economic power. And I think COVID has elevated the importance of that first driver. And although there are movements that exist around challenging economic power and combating the far right, what you currently have is no equivalent movement around looking at how the discourse, the laws, the tools around security. So here I'm talking about everything um, in terms of legal frameworks. If you look at the national security legislation introduced in Hong Kong or the anti-terror bill in the Philippines, um, the discourse, you know, we've seen it in the US with the Trump administration characterizing racial justice um, protesters um, as a threat to security. Um, We're seeing it in the proliferation of surveillance technologies that are now being harnessed to look at problematic actors um, in the civic space and not just in in the in the sort of fora of terrorism and extremism. Um, and what you don't have is uh, an equivalent movement to the climate movement, to the labor rights movement, to, to me too, to, to the demand for racial and justice equality. Um, that's focusing on what does it mean to start questioning the logic of misuse of security powers and discourse and tools? Um, in terms of where that would start, 
we can see pockets of movement building and resistance. We've seen it most vividly in the US and Black Lives Matter. There are equivalent micro movements in other countries um, from within the communities, indigenous communities, feminist women, peace and security, those working on environmental justice who've been on the receiving end of police brutality and militarization for years. How do we start resourcing them at the scale required? So they're not just looking at protection security, but they're starting to question who's behind these laws and who's supporting this at the international level within the UN and other international bodies. The next sort of phase would be to then link those movements globally, but also link them vertically up to those international spaces where you have a handful of coalitions that have been looking at how the UN and other bodies have been driving a proliferation of laws globally around counterterrorism and security. But how do you link up these movements into a global networked response in terms of how governments will respond, I mean, for years, both authoritarian and Western governments have benefited from um, the dominant focus on countering terrorism and security. But I think what we are beginning to see, and particularly in the context of COVID, some real disquiet from amongst Western democracies about how the proliferation of emergency powers and new forms of surveillance um, technologies are going to equip particularly authoritarian leaning actors with the tools and the discourse and the laws they need to shut down civic space in their countries. So the challenge is going to be how to convert the sympathy of those Western democracies into some concrete changes at the international level, but also for them to hold those authoritarian actors to account on the international stage. Ben, you've said the future of civic space will be shaped by crisis. That crisis, quote, moves the window of regressive forces, end quote. Let's look at how tech can be both a problem and a solution here. Where does tech fit into this reimagining of security? Are we at risk of replacing one ill for another? Um, I, th I think I'll start by just sort of unpacking um, a little bit more about what we meant by um, crisis, you know, moving the window of regressive forces. And, you know, we know from history that crisis tends to favour forces on the right, right? So whether that's economic shock, shock doctrine driven by neoliberal economists, the launch of the war on terror, which Puna mentioned, and the introduction of swathes of emergency powers that, that were then quickly made permanent, or the exploitation of economic crisis by authoritarian populists, which we've seen increasingly in recent years. And we wrote our paper on the future of civic space before the pandemic hit. And obviously, you know, none of us saw it coming, but it did reaffirm something that had seemed fairly obvious since the sort of the crisis, the global financial crisis of 2008. And that's that politics and social and material life more broadly were going to be shaped by the response to crisis. And now whether that was climate change, recurring economic crises, financial shocks, social polarization, geopolitical conflicts, whatever. Um, so, you know, there's reasons to be pretty pessimistic about the direction of world travel in 2020, but it's, it's not to say that it's inevitable that we're sliding into chaos or, or spiraling inexorably into disaster. The reason we did sort of frame the, the research we did around future crises is really to make the point that looking ahead, civil society should be thinking about how crisis-driven change may play out 
and what that means for their own strategies of progressive change, right? So if we then look at tech, I'm not sure it's necessarily about replacing one kind of security with another as such, but more about responding more coherently to the challenges and opportunities that certain technologies um, pose in the context of civil society and civic space. So I think probably all of your listeners by now have, have woken up to what you know Evgeny Morozov called the net delusion and how the utopian promise of the internet, global connectedness and so on, um, would quickly give way to sort of surveillance and social control and, and push back against activism and civil society. So I, th I think that's one point. I think we're also collectively in the process of better understanding the implications of what in the last few years has been termed surveillance capitalism as a mode of governance that potentially limits the capacity of civil society to push for radical social change on issues related to democracy, economy and security. So if we then think about the sites of struggle in which civil society is present, so the streets, the workplace, education settings, government, the digital arena, the public sphere, and so on, we then have to ask ourselves, how is technology changing those spaces? And not least because, you know, I think, again, as we've all seen, the, this sort of new normal engendered by COVID-19 is clearly accelerating these changes. And then I think the question becomes, you know, how is it that states are mediating or failing to mediate those spaces in ways which constrain or undermine civic action? As Puna mentioned, you know, we can ask the same question about ideological actors, uh, those regressive forces you mentioned. How are they using these spaces to push their own agendas in ways which are often explicitly designed to limit or undermine the capacity for progressive or radical social change. In turn, I think the question then becomes, what opportunities does technology offer in terms of radical new forms of accountability? So be that for the way we're governed, be that the way security is constructed and practiced, or be that in, in the defense of civic space itself. And I, I don't think we've got all of the answers yet, or at least sort of figured out how to knit those answers together. Um, but what we try to do with the paper is sort of point towards a need to up our game from simply advocating for human rights and good government and an enabling environment for civil society and so on, um, because the world is so much more messy and complex than it was even a decade ago. I think the final thing to say is, yes, of course, that sort of techno-utopian um, vision still persists, persists within Silicon Valley and elsewhere, um, and there really is a danger that we say, look, you know, these, um, you know, the problems that we have with unaccountable police forces or the misuse of certain police powers um, might be solved if we came up with another way of governing at distance that marshaled technology um, in ways to sort of take uh, certain actors out of the picture or, or rethink the way um, security is conceived and practiced. But I think from where we are now, the challenge is really about looking at the ways security technologies are currently impacting civic space and then thinking constructively about how to develop a shared understanding of the harms um, and appropriate responses to these very messy challenges. Poonam, one of your main objectives is to identify current initiatives on civic space that need scaling up. 
According to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, one of the factors limiting international response on closing civic space is a failure of funders to commit the necessary resources to addressing the issue. How do we convey to civic space funders the critical nature of investing in infrastructure and capacity? What would an effective response look like? I mean, I think in terms of that urgency and something we've been trying to get across in the aftermath of this report was a very strong sense from many of those we interviewed that we just had a limited window for action. Um, Many, particularly those working around technology and climate change, at most gave us a decade um, to really ensure that progressive forces were resourced and galvanised on par with some of the malign actors that we're seeing already trying to advance their visions and values over the next decade. And that spans from governments like China, who are experimenting and exporting repression, um, but also companies, fossil fuel industry, still engaging in climate science denialism, but also attacks on civil society. So we're up against considerable odds here. And... When we asked the movements on the front line what they needed, yes, they they want us to galvanise to counter those drivers, but they also want philanthropy to invest in positive visions. And and one of the things that we highlight in the report is um, a section on, you know, the playbook of the far right and the neoliberals. Why have they been so successful in in positioning themselves now at the kind of vanguard of shaping the systems um, over the next decade and beyond. And what we found was that um, both the far right, religious right, and and particular neoliberal actors were incredibly good at investing in three things. And these are the three things we think progressive funders should be investing in. First and foremost, movements. not project funding, not short-term funding, um, but long-term core flexible support to movements on the ground, but also connections between those movements at the transnational level. One of the ironies of um, the nationalists like Orban and Bolsonaro and Modi is even though they're talking about sovereignty, they're extremely good at um, sharing tactics, tools, Um, and coming together in transnational spaces in a way that progressives simply aren't. So investing in those movements through the grassroots funders that already exist or or trying to support those movements directly. Secondly, investing in visionary thinking. So supporting progressives, not just to talk about what we don't want, but what we do want instead of current models of democracy or economy or security. And then thirdly, narratives. So because of this limited window of opportunity we have, as we were interviewing people, they were saying, look, time is not on your side. To get this on the agenda of governments, you need to have the public behind you on a massive scale. And so that requires, yes, doing work on policy and advocacy and and trying to convince government officials of our agendas, but actually it's around getting the public on board And this is something the far right, religious right are extraordinarily good at doing. So for progressive funders, that means funding in narrative change work and strategic communications at scale and making sure those resources are available for a whole range of civic actors 
that currently, you know, just don't have access to that kind of expertise, technology or tools. So that would be our starting point for what funders should do. Now, the last question is for you both. It's clear these are critical times for defending civic space. There's still so much we can do. I think the question on many people's minds is, how can we match the scale of what we're up against? How are these critical efforts being advanced right now inside and outside the sector? And what kinds of organizations or initiatives should practitioners be aligning themselves with? Ben, let's start with you. Um, That's a great question. And I think, um, you know, if we give an honest response to that, uh, you know, the answer is quite challenging for us. So if we're talking about, you know, the the acceleration of authoritarianism, you know, the, the dramatic um, capabilities that states now have using surveillance technology, you know, you, uh, Puna mentioned China, you know, but look at the, the way technology has enabled to manage the repression at scale of, say, the Uyghur community, you know, that would have been unimaginable, I think, even just sort of a decade ago, um, just the sophistication of the technology, right? So I think, you know, the honest answer is that there is a massive mismatch between what we're up against in terms of the the scale of the problem and the resources um, that, that civil society have. But I think there's also um, a number of trends that we can already see that give us cause for optimism. Um, And I think the first of those, perversely, is that as closing civic space comes to affect more and more activists and movements and organisations and philanthropic funders, there is this growing realisation that these problems are systemic, intersectional and profound um, in ways that Puna mentioned, and is something that's affecting democratic and illiberal regimes alike, right? So now we're starting to see Humanitarians talking about closing humanitarian space, doctors criticizing over-securitized response to COVID, educators pushing back on ideological interference in the education system, tech workers demanding divestment or withdrawal from repressive technologies or, or toxic partnerships. And so I think in much the same way as sort of Ed Snowden um, his revelations possibly didn't realize to the sort of didn't result in the reform of surveillance policies in the way that he hoped, we'd all hoped. His legacy was to radicalize a generation of software engineers. Um, And I think, you know, this sort of overtly authoritarian turn of the last few years is radicalizing people outside of traditional activist and civil society spaces in ways that the sector um, has to recognize and engage with. I think this is already resulting um, in, in the kinds of innovation and cross-sectoral alliances that are going to be needed moving forward, um, both within sort of professional civil society and outside relationships that simply weren't there before. Um, and perhaps most importantly, I think there's a sort of realisation that activists and social movements who are on the sharp end of the repression and institutional brutality that the sort of the term c- civic space so poorly captures in a way, um, are, ben- are potentially much better vehicles for elaborating change and alternatives than sort of professional civic space advocates have managed. Burnham already mentioned um, Black Lives Matter and how they've already shifted the conversation on how to address, you know, overtly securitized 
and unaccountable police forces um, in ways that just weren't even part of the conversation, you know, just a couple of years ago. So I think the overwhelming lesson and, and one that I think many people have already heeded is that for those of us who are sort of engaged in trying to reimagine or develop a shared vision of democracy, economy, security that's fit for the decades ahead, it is going to be about listening and engaging with social movements in ways that civil society traditionally hasn't done and hasn't done well. Poonam, same question. How are these critical efforts being advanced right now inside and outside the sector? And what kinds of organizations or initiatives should practitioners align themselves with? Across the three drivers, we're seeing mobilization at different levels. Um, that would advance a whole range of issues, including civic space. Um, in, res in relation to abuse and concentration of economic power, um, we're obviously seeing um, a growing climate justice movement globally, but we've seen a resurgence of labour rights activism in the context of COVID. And there are existing networks and initiatives that funders could support but there are also a number of philanthropic entry points for those kind of new to this issue. And in particular, I'd, I'd like to point out um, Forge, which is a new um, pooled fund looking at issues of human rights around the global economy. There's the Edge Funders Network, which is a space for funders to come together to sort of figure out where they can focus their efforts around issues of climate change, environmental justice, but I know that climate, um, the intersection between climate and civic space is one of the issues that they're looking at. I think when you're looking at the far right and the religious right, there's been some amazing work done by a coalition of LGBTI, feminist, sexual reproductive rights groups over recent years in tracing where the money is coming for for um, systematic campaigns across US, Latin America, Europe, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, targeted at rolling back um, women's rights, LGBTI rights, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, the, the, the coalition that's behind that, which is being led by the Global Philanthropy Partnership, is trying to do something very ambitious next year, which is bringing together 200 funders united by the fact that the movements that we are engaged with are on the receiving end of a global systematic attack on human rights. Um, so that's certainly another entry point that funders could align themselves with. Um, I think when you're talking about digital threats to democracy, there are some really interesting developments um, that are trying to match the scale of what we're up against that Ben mentioned. So for example, Luminate has set up a new fund called Reset which is looking at countering digital threats to democracy. And within that, looking at the heart of the power of the tech giants and how to start fragmenting that power in ways that they can actually be held to account. Um, but you've also got initiatives like Ariadne that is trying to get all of its members to incorporate a focus on tech and power in their work. So the stepping stone for much of this work is going to be convincing not just the five or six funders that already fund this work, but how do you build a community of funders, for example, willing to fund at the intersection of tech, threats to democracy and threats from security. So I think that's certainly something that it's worth your listeners checking out. 
in relation to security itself, we've seen a massive gap in resources. Um, so FIX is going to be pivoting over the next six months to set up a new fund on securitization and civic space um, to provide a vehicle for those funders who can see that all of the issues that they care about and the grantees that they support are being criminalized, are being delegitimized, are being surveyed, and would like to do more in addition to helping them with digital and physical security, but want to help them boost their efforts to counter what's coming sort of from the upstream um, level. Um, so FIX is going to be launching that fund in March of next year. And through that, we're hoping to support both international groups, but frontline movements to take united action against securitization. Poonam Joshi, Director of Funders Initiative for Civil Society at Global Dialogue, and Ben Hayes, Director of AWO. Thank you. Digital Impact is a program of the Digital Civil Society Lab at the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. Follow this and other episodes at digitalimpact.io and on Twitter at DGTLImpact with hashtag 4Q4Data.